And please be seated. Please open with me now in God's Word to the book of Revelation. We're drawing near uh, the end of uh, this book. Uh, With today's passage, we will close chapter 21 uh, before uh, next week, uh, moving on to the final chapter of Revelation. Uh, So again today, Revelation 21 Uh, verses 22 through 27. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Uh, In Revelation 21, uh, the Apostle John has received this vision. It's a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, which will be established at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in particular, he sees the new Jerusalem, which is nothing less than the glorified church of God descending out of heaven in all of its uh, perfected state. And it is uh, that new Jerusalem, which he is further describing here in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. So let's now hear uh, God's uh, holy word. And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, this ends this reading in God's Word. Uh, Let's earnestly seek the face of God once again in prayer. Uh, Lord, our God, we approach your preached Word today knowing uh, that these words are your Word to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. You would give us minds which understand, hearts which would respond to and receive your Uh, Holy Word. Remind us, O Lord, that uh, how we respond today is something of the utmost importance, that we would not be like those who harden our hearts, even as that generation in the wilderness did, and complained against you and did not hear or believe your Word. Grant instead, O Lord our God, that we would believe everything that you say and live by it, a work in us today for your glory. Form and fashion us as we just sang. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. The book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, is one of the great chapters which describes uh, what will happen at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we are told that when Jesus Christ Uh, returns, that those who are dead in Christ will uh, rise first, that they will meet with the Lord uh, in the air, and then those who are alive are going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This Lord who returned with the voice of an archangel and a 
trumpet of God and a cry of command. They are going to meet the Lord. And at that moment, we are told this. Then, and so, we will always be with the Lord. That's the summary description that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 4 of what it means to be in this new heavens and the new earth, part of the glorified, forever redeemed church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says very simply, and so we will forever be with the Lord. And then he goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, as we turn to Revelation 21 today, we find that that is really a beautiful summary of what this passage is all about. In describing this glorified church of God, he describes us as being in a way that we never have been before, with an intimacy and a degree of fellowship which we have never before known. Therefore, we will forever be with the Lord. What are we to do but to encourage one another with these words uh, that, we, uh, that we read of today? Uh, the theme of these verses is the theme of the temple. That's how the passage begins. I saw no temple in the city, and the reason isn't that there is no temple, but rather that the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We are indeed... To be in heaven is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so I want to open up this passage as we look ahead to that new heavens and new earth, open it up under four different headings. Uh, The nature of the temple, uh, followed by the light of the temple. Thirdly, then, the occupants of the temple. Fourth, the purity of the temple. So the nature of the temple in verse 22. Then verse 23, the light of the temple 24 through 26, the occupants of the temple, and then lastly in verse 27, the purity of uh, the temple. Well, first of all, the nature of uh, the temple does speak of the temple there in verse 22, and that's not a strange word at all to the person familiar with their Bibles. Uh, Under the Old Testament, the temple was one of the defining uh, characteristics of true biblical uh, religion. You may remember that when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, they were brought into the wilderness, and then at God's direction, and according to his very specific instruction, uh, they built a tabernacle. Uh, A tabernacle was a kind of portable uh, sanctuary that represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. And so wherever the people of God traveled in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they would uh, take down the tent, and when they camped, they would put the tent back up, and wherever they were, it was a reminder that the presence of God amongst his people was what made Israel distinct. Well, then after the people uh, conquered and settled in the promised land, they then built the temple, which was a more permanent tabernacle a permanent house of God dwelling in the midst of the land which the Lord had given them, reminding them, indeed, that the Lord was with His people. But then, with the coming of uh, the New Testament, when Jesus Christ came, 
we read in the pages of uh, the New Testament that there is no longer a, a physical temple to which Christians are to come. Jews continued for a time to worship in the temple. But indeed, we see in the New Testament that that physical temple in Jerusalem would one be uh, overrun and destroyed, and rather, true religion centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Destroy this temple, he said, meaning his own body. And in three days it will be raised again. Well, now with Christ's ascension, it is nothing less than the church which becomes the temple of God through the Holy Spirit who is poured out. That the Lord is building us up one upon another, into a holy temple in the Lord. And so it is within the church of Jesus Christ that the Lord especially dwells. What a thought that is. Even as we are gathered here, it seems a, well, just a rather ordinary assembly in a rather ordinary town in Massachusetts. But the Lord God himself is pleased to come and dwell among his people and to speak to us. Speak, O Lord, we just sang. And that's what happens wherever God's people meet. Lord, where'er your people meet, there they behold the mercy seat uh, we sing. And so indeed, uh, the temple of God is amongst his people. But now, as we look ahead to the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, what is described here, uh, where is God's everlasting abode. And here we see, verse 22, this glorious reality that I saw no temple in the city, no physical building, no physical temple in that way. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That is, the whole of the new Jerusalem the fully redeemed church of God is the temple of God. There is God's abode. That is where he dwells. It was hinted at last week, was it not, when we looked at the dimensions of this city and we saw that it was a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. But the promise is, indeed, that God's presence is what fills the new Jerusalem. It's as one commentator said, it fills every nook and cranny of that place. That the city itself is the temple of God. That in glory you cannot leave the loving, worshipful, worshipful presence of God. All is temple. His special presence is manifested. Wherever you go, in every place, there's an intimacy to our union with God, a, a kind of um, a near access fellowship that we have with the living God and that we're going to have with Him for all eternity. What a glorious promise this is. That the communion that we have known in this earth is going to be heightened to another degree as we know our God and are known uh, by Him. You might ask the, the question, well, if, if all of that new Jerusalem, if, if all of it is, is a temple, 
How can I be there? I'm a sinner. Under the Old Covenant, you, you, you well know that it was only the high priest who could enter, and him only after sacrifice had been offered and he was cleansed. Well, what a beautiful description this is that we have in verse 22 that we're, when we are reminded that its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, the references to the Lord Jesus throughout Revelation 21, I think it's three of them, and in each case, what he is called is the Lamb. And it's a reminder that what Jesus is, is the one who has made atonement for us. The sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who it is. And there in glory is none other than the lamb standing for us, for our sake, by his sacrifice. He has secured our uh, our abode in the presence of, of God. And so here we see in God's new creation that this promise really of the gospel is completely fulfilled. What is the promise of the gospel? But simply that we lost sinners can have restored fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel promises us this blessing first of all that we are with God and that God is with us. That where that barrier had been created because of sin, is that barrier is now torn down and we are fully in His presence to enjoy God for all eternity. And here in this new heavens and new earth, that gospel promise comes to its complete fruition. God living amongst His people, us dwelling in the presence of of God. And friends, that is the real glory of heaven above everything else. That is the thing to which we ought to look forward above everything else. It is the sacred, loving, joyful, overwhelming presence of God continually. It is to be with Him as our reconciled Father, as the one who loves us and we love Him back. It is to know those kinds of blessings from His hand. Oh, what glory there is. Uh, in, in heaven. So what does this mean for you and for me today? Well, it means that you and I ought to greatly desire His presence even now in anticipation of that day. One of the greatest preparations for heaven is to cultivate even now that relationship with the God whom we love. To speak to Him in prayer. To uh, eat at the table of the Lord, to hear His Word and to receive it as the Word of your God to you, to joyfully gather with your people, with God's people on a Lord's Day. Do you know that what we do here on the Lord's Day is the nearest thing to heaven that we have in this life, to gather with His people and to praise His name. Oh, friends, how we ought to cultivate communion with God. Religion is not merely a matter of externals and rituals and things like that. Children, do you hear me? It's not merely outward things that we do, but it's having a heart that is drawn near to God through Jesus Christ. It's to know Him in, in the inner man, inner life with the Lord, communion with Him. You desire that. You long for it. Do you seek after that? To walk with God closely. That is the nature of the temple 
of that place. Well, let's move on. Secondly, I want us to consider, secondly, out of our passage, uh, the light of the temple. The light of the temple. We go on to read in verse 23 that the city, which is the temple of the Lord, uh, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So here, this city is described as having no need for sun and moon. You think the sun shines brilliantly, and it does, right? You, you try to look straight into the sun, and you, you quickly have to turn your eyes away because of how brightly it shines. Here it's saying, oh, the glory, the light that comes from the living God is, is brighter yet. You don't need a sun in this place because of the splendor of the glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what brings illumination here. It's the radiance of the magnificent, unspeakable glory of God. The Shekinah glory. That's the light. And that imagery of light is used often in Scripture with reference to the Lord. First uh, John 1 6, this is a message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Or we think of the words of Jesus when he said uh, that he is the light of the world. Or John 1 9, that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into uh, the world. And what a, what a wonderful uh, description. I hope you didn't miss this in verse 23. This is of the deity of Jesus Christ, isn't it? If it's the glory of God which gives light to this place, there we, then we're told that the lamp is the Lamb. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Lamb is none other than God, shining forth with the glory of God. Jehovah is Jesus. He is uh, the, the, the glorious God Himself. He is the light uh, of, of the world. Now, Jesus is the light, certainly even today, right? Uh, we read of that in uh, John chapter 3, for example. John chapter 3, uh, beginning uh, in verse uh, 19. Uh, there we read that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light has shone in a very dark world. But, what happened? People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we live in a world in which, even though the light has shone, that there is still the love of darkness, that people walk around in blindness and in ignorance not allowing uh, or not opening their eyes to the light that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, even Christians sometimes experience a kind of darkness, do we not? We have the light of the world, Jesus. And He does shine light into our hearts, but nonetheless, we still experience darkness. Darkness at times through our own ignorance or through our own unbelief, through our own struggle with sin. 
a darkness that sometimes manifests itself in a gloominess or in a depression, right? Sometimes we might even speak of the, the dark night of the soul. Referring to times when, when our vision seems clouded and nothing seems right and we're confused about the world in which we live and uh, you know we, we can be affected by things. Maybe you've gone through trauma or through abuse and it, it affects everything, the way that you see everything and things appear dark and gloomy at times. Dear Christian, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are headed to a place when the light is going to shine and it's going to shine brilliantly upon you. All the gloomy darknesses of this life are going to be behind us. And we are going to know even as we are fully known, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us in that place, we are going to experience the bright light of the glory of God in all of its brilliance. What a wonderful promise this is. Isaiah chapter 60 uh, looked forward to this. It's Isaiah, really, Revelation 21 here is a kind of commentary on all of Isaiah 60 verses, uh, or all of Isaiah 60. But in verses 19 through 21, it says that the sun shall be no more, and your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. What a glorious promise that is. And it's looking ahead to that time of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have seen, dear friends, first of all, the nature of this temple. Secondly, the light, the bright shining light of the glory of God that will illumine uh, that place. So we have the presence of God. We have the glory of God being its light. Now, thirdly, about the temple, I want us to consider the occupants of the temple. The occupants of the temple. Verse 24 through 26. There we are told that by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They, referring to the kings of the earth, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nations. Kings of the earth. Filling this new creation. And this is obviously referring to those who are saved, for there are none that are admitted in to this place but those who are redeemed, who have their names written in the book of the Lamb. So here it is describing the redeemed people of God, and it's saying that God's saving purposes are not small and narrow, merely confined to one little ethnic group or one nationality of people, but rather who is going to walk in the light of the glory of the living God forever and ever. It is described as, nations walking in this light. What a wonderful picture this is. Again, Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, this time verses uh, 4 and 5 uh, give us this uh, same uh, idea. 
Isaiah 60, beginning at verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. It's a promise. Yes, even in the Old Testament Scriptures that God's ultimate saving purpose didn't just include the people of Israel, but rather it was for all the Gentile nations as well to be brought in. This is why Jesus in John's Gospel is called the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of one ethnic group, but of the world. This is why in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended, there's that kind of programmatic statement that says, how is the Gospel going to be go forth? It's going to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, then not stop there, and then even to the ends of the earth. And indeed, that's the thrust that we see throughout Scripture is the Gospel being taken out and the nations being brought into the kingdom. And here we read, who is it that shall ultimately live in this light? Well, it is going to indeed be a vast multitude that is going to... uh, 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 consist of a redeemed humanity, but a redeemed humanity that is a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural community. Think about it. On that day, that final day, with the whole redeemed church of God, it's going to have people in it from, from all the nations of this world. There are there going to be Uh, people from uh, Kenya and from Honduras. There are going to be uh, Vietnamese and Chinese and people from India and uh, people from uh, Afghanistan. There are going to be Canadians there. There are going to be Mexicans there. There are going to be people from the U.S. There are going to be Native Americans there, as we heard with all of their various tribes, as we heard on uh, this last Wednesday night. Oh, dear friends, what a glorious Vision this is of the fully uh, redeemed uh, church. There's a beautiful diversity to it all. And we read there as well in verse 25 that the gates of the city shall never be shut by day. And they're not shut, period. Why? Because there's no night there. What happened in an ancient city? Of course, in an ancient city at nighttime, the gates would be shut to protect and preserve the city so that no enemies could come in. Well, these gates always remain open because there are no enemies anymore that can attack the church. And so the the picture here is of just this fully redeemed multitude of humanity flowing through uh, the gates from the various nations and ethnic groups of of this world, the various languages, Gentile nations from every direction bringing, coming into the gates, not to attack the city, but in order to bring worship and glory to the living God. I mean, what we had at Jesus' birth, isn't it a beautiful thing that when Jesus was born, we read of these, these strange kings from the east. We know very little about them. 
other than that the Lord so moved in their hearts that they saw this star and they brought gifts. Children, do you remember the gifts? Right? Okay. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they brought them to the Lord Jesus. Well, that is but the beautiful little foretaste of what is going to be done on that final day. When peoples from the vast span of the globe, from every nation, kings of the earth, we are described here as even bringing their gifts of homage and worship to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I simply ask you, does that picture excite you? It ought to excite you so much. Do you delight in the diversity of the church? Do you delight in the wideness of God's saving purposes? In the various culture and cultures, people groups that he's going to bring into the church. That's why we ought to rejoice in it even now. You know, the church ought never to be a place where we protect our own culture. Okay? The church doesn't belong to you. It's God's church, and it's a multicultural church of various peoples, and we ought to rejoice in that and delight in that and not put up any barriers at all to vast people of all sorts of differences, earthly differences, coming together with Jesus Christ in common to worship and to glorify That's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. But then it it does in this passage then go on in verse 24. Make an interesting statement. And again in verse 26. Verse 24 it says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory or their splendor into the city. And then in verse 26 it says they will bring into it the glory and the honor of of the nations. Now, what is this? Well, I think one possibility is that this is simply referring to their homage or the worship of the triune God, that the glory, that the, as it were, the greatest glory of any people is the worship of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. To submit ourselves to the Lord is the greatest glory of any people. I think that possibly could be what this is referring to. But, and here a number of reliable commentators think that this possibly might be the case as well, that what is being referred to here by the the glory of the nations or the honor of the nations could be referring to various aspects of diverse human cultures that are then brought into the service of God. You know, the Lord has made us, as humans, in His image, to be a creative people. Creativity is one of God's uh, gifts to us. It is part of taking dominion in His world, of expressing what it means to be made in His image. And we labor in all sorts of ways. If I were just to go around this room and to think of all the different things that you do, gifts that are given to you by God. Some of you can cook a really good meal. Others of you are really good at writing. Others of you at building things. Others of you, you're brilliant with a computer. 
Okay, or you can help make uh, 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 robots or jet engines. Others of you, amazing at composing or playing music, or maybe engaging in athletic uh, endeavors, or doing something artistic, creating a sculpture, or painting something. Others of you in medical fields, we just go on and on. Different gifts, different abilities that the Lord has given us. And these things are good. They're good gifts. We do them because the Lord has made us and, and, and given us those ability. And we do them with abilities granted by God. And these products glorify God. We're engaged in these kinds of daily labors because this is what God has made us uh, to do Now, it is true that in our sinful world, people use those gifts for all sorts of sinful and wicked ends, for selfish ends, in order to manipulate others and to use them and to oppress them. They engage in uh, immorality and they take advantage of others with the gifts that they've been given. But nonetheless, the gifts themselves are good. And could it be that what verses 24 and 26 are talking about are that these cultural products, as it were, the, the, the products of human ingenuity and creativity throughout this vast, diverse world that the Lord has made, that even these things themselves will in some sense be redeemed and brought into the new heavens and the new earth that the best of various human cultures will find, will be found in this redeemed world and there in glory that God's people will continue to be artistic and creative and industrious. And dear friends, let me just say, I have no reason to think that we would be anything less than that. That's the kind of humanity that God has made us to be. What is it to be fully redeemed? but to express that now without any sinfulness, but to God's glory alone. I see every reason why that would be so, that in glory we will not be less human, but more human. That there may arise, even in glory, greater talents than uh, the music of a Bach or of, uh, or of the writing of your uh, favorite author than the science of an Isaac uh, Newton, just go on uh, the, the the paintings of a uh, uh, or uh, of a Da Vinci, okay. That all of these things would be done, but done to the glory of our Maker and of our uh, Redeemer. It's an interesting thought. I think it is hard to know with much detail what is being talked about here when it talks about the nations bringing their glory and their honor into this new heavens and new earth. It's hard to talk about the exact shape that this will take, but these words, I think, do hint at something of the glory of this fully redeemed humanity being part of this new Jerusalem, the nations and the kings forever and ever in the presence of the Lord. One thing I can say absolutely for certain, dear friends, is that there is not going to be a thing that is worse about that place than there is about this place. That whatever the good and God-glorifying things that we experience here, dear friends, things are going to be so much better than in the presence of God. So don't be concerned, you who think, hmm, I don't know about 
this or, or that, or we're going to have that in glory. I'm going to miss that. I, I think maybe I prefer things. None, no, we don't prefer things. Do. None of us do. Oh, friends, the glory of that place far exceeds what our greatest expectations could be. Well, let's move on now, finally, fourthly and finally, to the purity of the temple. Okay, we've seen the nature of the temple. We've seen the light of the temple, the occupants of the temple. Fourthly, now, the purity of the temple. When it does say in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is saying that all sin, all moral uncleanness is going to be utterly excluded from that city. That is, God is holy. The place of His dwelling is a place of perfect holiness in which only the perfectly holy can enter. This means a couple of things. It does mean, first of all, that if you are a sinner and nothing is done about your sin, that you will not enter the place that is described here. That is, if you are not written in the Lamb's book of life, which means that you have not come in saving faith to Jesus Christ to have your sin cleansed and washed away and to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says very clearly that nothing unclean will ever enter nor the ones who do what is detestable or false. And that is you. And you need, you have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to go to Christ today for cleansing. I mean, if I were to tell you that I owned a home in West Springfield that was 20,000 square feet, it had three swimming pools, it had giant indoor movie theater, uh, I don't know what else you guys like, a skating rink, a bowling alley, whatever. You, you, do, you think of it in your own head, okay? Whatever that great home would be. And the only thing that you had to do to get into that home, okay, I'm just requiring that you have a, you have a shower and a change of clothes before you step foot in this place. That's it. And the rest, it's yours. You can enjoy it. I think probably everyone here would say, well, I can take a shower I can put on a change of clothes and I can go into this place. Well, dear friends, what I've just asked you to do and to shower and get, a, and get a change of clothes, dear friends, is in itself, in one sense, that is harder than what the Lord asks us to do, which is simply to come with all of our sin to the foot of the cross and to leave it there. And to say, Lord Jesus, you have done it all for me. By your blood, cleanse me. Give me your perfect righteousness that I might be in your kingdom. That's, that's what it is to come into the kingdom. It is to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a sense in which it is easier. There's a sense in which it is harder because it's not what the natural person wants to do. Plead with the Lord. Would you look to him in faith? Would you be cleansed? Because it is the only way to this eternal city that we've described today.
So this does tell us that if you are still in your sin and you have not received this cleansing from Christ, you will not enter this place. But the second thing that it, that it tells us, and this is a wonderful promise for the people of God, it is a promise that all who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be entirely cleansed before entering glory. You see the logic of these verses. It says, who may enter? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, who are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life? It is those who are not unclean, not detestable, not false. Which means that if we belong to Jesus Christ, then this work of sanctification which God has begun in this life, He is going to bring to completion. And the sin that you now struggle with, and that you repent of, and you ask God to deal with, and you say, Lord, forgive me for falling into this sin, and then you seem to gain some victory over it for a couple of days, and then, oh, you've done it again. And it's one of these battleground sins, and it seems for a while you are gaining the upper hand, but then it seems to to marshal all of its forces against you again, and you fall down again. And friends, for, for some of us, Uh, There are sins that we struggle with in this way over a long period of time doing battle against them. And here the promise is, oh, oh dear child of God, that there is coming a day of final victory. When that sin which you on the one hand, that you uh, so detest and yet continue to fall into, that that sin is forever going to be gone. And you are going to be made, as we read earlier out of the catechism, you are going to be, uh, that you are going to be made perfect in holiness. And you will enter into glory. What a promise this is. And so it is the assurance that the sins with which we struggle will not gain the final victory. We shall be like him, 1 John says, for we shall see him as he is. What a promise. So what do those who have this promise do? 1 John 3, those who have this hope in them, purify themselves even as he is pure. We now, in joyful anticipation of that day, continue to fight against sin, continue to keep our eyes focused upon Jesus Christ, continue to live, remembering the place to which we are going. We said earlier, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage yourself, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the promise, the promise of this temple. Not a physical structure, but the full, beautiful, wonderful presence of you, the living God in our midst. Lord, encourage us in this fight. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon that finish line. Help us to labor daily in light of these realities, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.